Open your Bibles once again to Hebrews chapter 5, please. Once more, that's page 1204 in the Pew Bibles there. Our text this morning from these first 10 verses of chapter 5 has a lot of detail, and there are a lot of wonderful but fairly complicated ideas here. But for all that, I don't want us to lose sight of the simplicity of the basic message of this text. So I want to state that right up front this morning. Do you see what the main message of this text is to us this morning? It's that the Lord Jesus Christ is a perfect high priest. The Lord Jesus Christ is a perfect high priest. And because we have him as our high priest... We have a perfect Savior. That's the main thrust of this entire passage. Now, we're going to try to fill that out with a lot of the details, but I don't want us to lose the wood for the trees this morning. The Lord Jesus Christ is indeed a great and a perfect high priest who saves us perfectly. Let's pause just now to pray, and we'll continue. Our Father, we give you thanks that we have such a great high priest, one who has been made perfect in every way. We ask now that he would speak to us, that he would intercede for us. In Christ's name, amen. Do you see the repetition of that little phrase, high priest, throughout this passage? Do you see it there? Look at verse 1. Every high priest. Then again, verse 5, so Christ also did not take upon himself the glory of becoming a high priest. And then verse 10, right at the end of our section, and was designated by God to be the high priest, high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Our passage this morning, you can see it right there, is literally framed by and centered on this idea that Jesus is a perfect high priest. That's what this text is all about. And in fact, those of you who know Hebrews well know that Hebrews wants to tell us wonderful things about Jesus, our great high priest. The fact that Jesus is a high priest is in some ways the central message of this entire so-called letter to the Hebrews. But here this morning, there are certain specific aspects of Jesus' high priesthood that these verses unfold to us. And we want to spend our time considering what those are and how it is that Jesus, as a perfect high priest, saves us perfectly. Let me ask you this question, then, as we begin. What is a high priest? When you hear that phrase, or for that matter, the word priest, what comes to mind for you? How would you explain to someone what a priest is? Well, for some of you, the resonance might be entirely negative. You know that in recent years, most times when priests figure in the news, that is not good news. The news tends to be, doesn't it, that priests, leaders in the church, churches of various kinds, have abused their positions of trust and have abused, quite literally, people in their care. 
That is obviously not what we want to hear when we hear the word priest from this passage. So I want to ask you again, what do you consider when you hear the word priest? Is a priest for you someone who stands between people and their God? Someone who officiates in a service, who reads from a sacred text, who officiates with certain rituals and set forms? Is that what a priest is? This past week, there was a priest in the news. Uh, Wonderfully, it wasn't terrible news, although it was odd news. I don't know how many of you would have seen this. There was a Roman Catholic priest in the Philippines, and YouTube video appeared of this priest at a Christmas service riding up and down the aisles of his cathedral on a hoverboard. You know those hoverboards which have been all the rage this past year, which sometimes burst into flames. Well, his didn't burst into flames, but there was quite a lot of response to the fact that this priest in his service was riding on a hoverboard. Some cried out that this disqualified him because it was not fitting for the worship of God that a priest ride on a hoverboard. Others shot back and said, no, this shows that this priest is relevant, that he knows where the people are, that he knows how to hold the attention of his people. Is that what qualifies someone to be a priest? Well, Our world would tell us many different things if we asked that question. Uh, I'm sure even if you went out after the service and caught someone on tube or on the street corner and asked them, what is a priest? One of the most common answers might be, well, a priest is a religious leader. Christian, a Muslim imam, a Buddhist, a Hindu priest, doesn't really matter. They're all the same, right? A priest is a priest, someone who leads the people in worship. But is that really what our text and, in fact, what Scripture generally teaches us about what a priest is and ought to be? So let's change the question briefly before we look at our text in more detail. If you were asked, what makes a good priest, even a perfect priest, what would you answer? Well, being good Protestant Presbyterians, we probably would... uh, want to qualify that question a bit, wouldn't we? Because we consider our leaders to be ministers, servants, not priests. And we, with Scripture, hold that all believers have been given the priesthood by Christ in a very real sense. The priesthood of all believers is something that we cling to as a Reformation truth. And so we might want to clarify what we mean by a perfect priest. But if I asked you again, here in this congregation, what would you describe, if I were uh, if I were asking you your thoughts on the perfect priest, the Lord Jesus, what would make him perfect? Would it be, along the lines of a recent survey of Americans, this shows uh, some of our cultural weaknesses perhaps, but some might track on this side of the Atlantic as well, would it be that a perfect priest is one who can relate well to his people? A perfect priest is humble, knows his own weaknesses and faults. A perfect priest is a good listener, can empathize with his people. I suspect we would take on some of that with a yes, and we would reject others of those details with a resounding no. What does our text teach us this morning about the perfect priesthood of the Lord Jesus? 
Well, let's begin by just taking a very quick ride through the book of Hebrews with certain verses where this phrase appears. Would you turn back a few pages to chapter 2? In chapter 2, this phrase, high priest, appears for the first time. Right at the end of chapter 2, in verses 17 and 18, we read, For this reason he had to be made like them, that is, the children of Abraham, the seed of Abraham, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Hebrews tells us that Jesus is a merciful and faithful high priest, one who has suffered through temptation greater than we will ever know because he never succumbed to that temptation. That's part of what makes Jesus a perfect high priest, according to Hebrews. And then in chapter 3, verse 1, the thought continues, doesn't it? Therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, whom we acknowledge as our apostle and high priest. And we're told more things about Christ over the course of chapter 3 of Hebrews that helps us to appreciate how he is a faithful and utterly trustworthy high priest whose words we can depend on, whose promises we can trust, who will bring his people into that unending and glorious Sabbath rest that God has prepared for us. But let's let's fast forward a bit to chapter 7, where this theme is really unpacked for us. Chapter 7, verses 23 to 28, we read this about Jesus as a high priest. Now, there have been many of those priests, that is, Old Testament priests in the line of Aaron, since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him, because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest truly meets our need one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted in the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all. When he offered himself, For the law appoints as high priests men in all their weakness, but the oath which came after the law appointed the Son who has been made perfect forever. Do you hear the riches of the reality that Jesus is a perfect high priest as they emerge in those verses? His priesthood is permanent. It will never end. It's perfect in that he has accomplished the perfect sacrifice for sin. He is holy, blameless, spotless, pure, standing in God's God the Father's presence in heaven. This is what makes him a perfect priest. Now, chapter 8 begins this way. Look at verse 1 before we turn back to our text. In chapter 8, verse 1, the writer of Hebrews pauses and summarizes what he really wants us to take away from reading this long book, this letter. And he says this, Now, the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, 
one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. Such a high priest. We have such a high priest. Hebrews teaches us, doesn't it, that Jesus is a very specific kind of high priest, that the perfection of his priesthood is of a certain kind, because he is a high priest who is perfectly qualified to meet the needs of his people, to bring sinners into the presence of a holy God, and to sustain believers through a life that calls for perseverance in the face of difficulty, in the face of suffering. Well, let's go back to our text and have a closer look. Chapter 5. You probably heard it as we read through these verses just a few moments ago. That chapter 5, verses 1 to 10, naturally divides itself into two sections. First, we see verses 1 to 4, which tells us about the Old Testament priesthood and ends with the paradigm of that Old Testament priesthood, Aaron, at the end of verse 4. And then verses 5 through 10 make a comparison, but also a contrast, that Jesus, too, is a high priest, similar but different in very important ways. So two sections that set up a comparison and a contrast in these verses. And within those two sections, do you see the three priests who are named? First, verse 4, there's Aaron. Then verse 5 and following, there's Christ, Christ Jesus. And then, sneaking in in those latter verses and coming right at the end of verse 10, there's a third priest by the name of Melchizedek. Melchizedek. Aaron, Jesus, and Melchizedek. Three priests, two different orders of priesthood, Aaron representing one, Melchizedek representing the other, but only one perfect priest, namely the Lord Jesus. Now there is much we could say about Melchizedek, but do you see what verse 11 says? It says just that, doesn't it? There's a lot we have to say about this this Melchizedek figure, But it's complicated, and we're going to wait, the writer to Hebrews says. In fact, he's going to wait an entire chapter, all through chapter 6, until finally picking that up in chapter 7. So we're going to wait with him and focus instead on what he focuses on in these verses this morning. Suffice it to say that he brings in this figure of Melchizedek from Genesis chapter 14, and also mentioned in Psalm 110 which we have cited in our text, in order to establish the fact that Jesus is, A, different in the kind of priesthood that he exercises, different to Aaron and the Levitical priests of the Old Testament, and different, B, in the sense that his priesthood is permanent, as we saw at the end of chapter 7. It is unending. It will never end because he has an indestructible life. Jesus having been raised from the dead, never to die again. But in chapter 5, verses 1 to 10, we want to focus first on this contrastive comparison between the priesthood of Aaron and the perfect priesthood of Jesus. And ultimately, ultimately, we want to see how what these verses teach us function in the larger context and flow of Hebrews. Now, in our uh, Pew Bibles, which are the NIV version, we meet a very important word in verse 1 of chapter 5. Those of you who have another version might have it there in front of you. Here's that little word. It's the little word for. For. 
That kicks off these 10 verses. And what does that do for us? It shows us that these 10 verses as a unit are meant to explain and support what has just come before. Specifically, what has just come before in chapter 4, verses 15 and 16, which was what? Do you remember what we heard there in the scripture reading? There it was that having such a great high priest as Jesus, let us draw near, let us enter into his into the very presence of the divine throne room. Why? Verse 16, to find grace and mercy, the grace and mercy that we need to help us in our time of need. Everything before us this morning begins to explain how it's possible, how it's possible that by virtue of Jesus' perfect priesthood, we can do that. We can draw near to God himself. So let's consider briefly three different aspects of our text this morning. Our high priest demonstrates a perfection, but it's a perfection that's the result of his selection and his humiliation. A perfection that is the result of his selection and his humiliation. We'll begin in verses 1 to 4 with his selection. Let's read those again uh, as and comment on them as we go. In verses 1 to 4, we get this Old Testament comparison to Aaron and priests who came from his line, who were descended from him. Verse 1 says, Every priest is selected from among the people and appointed to represent the people in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. Do you see the selection happening here? Selected, appointed. We'll see it again in verse 4, that he's called By God. It is God Himself who appoints the true priest. And this is why, in biblical terms, the world's definition of priesthood and what it means to be a perfect priest does not measure up. God has revealed to us that it is He and He alone who can appoint or select the priest that will represent us as His people as we come before Him. And what does that priest do? As he's selected, he's selected in order to represent, to relate the people, God, the directionality here of moving from the people to God by offering gifts and sacrifices. Why is this necessary? According to verses one and two of our text here, the very office of a priest is only necessary. Why? Because of sin. Do you see right there at the end of chapter, uh, verse 1? To offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. Verse, tr- verse 2, those who are subject to weakness, who are ignorant, who are going astray. Verse 3, the Old Testament high priest had to offer sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the sins of his people. It is the fact of sin, the fact that we have sinned against a holy God, who can no longer abide us as sinners to enter into his presence that necessitates the office of a priest, one who mediates between sinners and a holy God. That is why a priest is selected by God. In verse 3 there, as we read those phrases, for his own sins and for the sins of his people, our thoughts should turn back to the Old Testament, particularly to Leviticus chapter 16. You might like to spend some time there this afternoon or in the coming week because in Leviticus 16, we get a beautiful picture of what the priests accomplish 
on the Day of Atonement, that high holy day of the Old Covenant festival calendar, when the high priest, beginning with Aaron, was appointed and selected and instructed by God to represent the people. And first, what did he have to do? He had to offer a bull, to slay a bull, and to take its blood and to sprinkle that blood within the temple so that he could atone for his own sins symbolically by means of that blood. And then he had to take goats and he had to slay the goats and to offer that blood for the sins of the people. It is a bloody mess when you read Leviticus 16. Blood being splattered everywhere. And as Hebrews will tell us later in chapter 9 and chapter 10, there is no forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood. So even in the Old Testament priesthood, and especially on the Day of Atonement, we get a picture that blood must be shed in order to atone for sins. And it is the job of a priest who's selected by God in order to make that offering which enables sinners to be reconciled to a holy God. Verse 4 tells us, No one takes this honor on himself, but he receives it when called by God, just as Aaron was. In Exodus Chapter 28, verse 1, we see that, in fact, Aaron was called by God. God says, let Aaron, your brother, speaking to Moses, be brought to you from among the Israelites with his sons, Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar, so that they may serve me as priests. God called, God selected, God appointed Aaron and his descendants to be priests who mediated between the people and himself. So what do we learn in these verses about the selection of a high priest? We see that Aaron and his descendants were the ones selected to represent the people before God, to make offerings and atonement for sin, and to deal gently, verse 2, with those who are ignorant, who go astray, who err in their sinfulness. That this, too, is a function of a high priest. At its most basic, then, in the Old Testament picture of Aaron and his sons, we see what God wants us to understand about the office of a high priest. But now take a look at verses 5 to 10. In verses 5 to 10, there is an escalation and a contrast. An escalation and contrast, because we move now from Aaron and his descendants to Jesus, the perfect priest. Do you see verse 5? says, in the same way. There's that comparison which sets up this contrast. And, of course, verses 6 and 10, as we've seen. Now we're thinking in terms of Melchizedek and not Aaron. What are we doing then in verses 5 to 10? We're moving from the Old Testament types, little pictures that God revealed to teach his people about the office of a priest, from those types to the reality We're moving, in the language of Hebrews, from shadows, dimly represented truth, now to the fully defined picture of what it means for us to be reconciled to God through a perfect high priest. We're moving from a pattern in the Old Testament to perfection in Hebrews, the perfection of Jesus' priesthood in verse 9. We'll look at verse 5 once more. Jesus is referred to here, how? As the Christ The Messiah, that's an important use of this title. Sometimes we think 
Christ is simply the surname, don't we, of Jesus, when really it's a title, a title that's charged with theological meaning and importance because the Messiah is that one foretold by all the Old Testament scriptures who would come in the last days to work God's redemption for his people. And do you see why the writer calls him Christ just here? What does he then do in verses 5 and 6? He cites some of those Old Testament promises from the Psalms. First from Psalm 2, you are my son. In the language of Hebrews, that means Jesus is a king. His son is to be a king. And chapter 1 of Hebrews tells us that Jesus has been seated on a kingly throne, having accomplished all the work the Father gave him to do, that he has died for our sins, been raised from the dead, ascended to heaven, and seated on the throne at God's right hand. He's a son. But now, just here, especially here, Hebrews wants to move us from not only Jesus being represented as a son and a king, but also as a priest. And that's why in verse 6, it's Psalm 110 that is cited. You are a priest. Not only are you a son, you are a priest. The Messiah, the Christ, Jesus himself, is both king and priest for his people. And he's a priest in the order of Melchizedek, one who has a permanent and a perfect priesthood. Now, all of this makes sense within a larger framework that Hebrews and, in fact, all of Scripture lays out for us. Jesus' selection as a great high priest, his appointment as our high priest, rests on what is called often in theological terms as a covenant of redemption. Now, very simply, what do we mean by this? This is an agreement, a covenant, made between God the Father and God the Son, whereby God the Son, Jesus, undertakes to do the work of redemption for his people, and whereby God the Father undertakes and promises to bless the people whom he gives to the Lord Jesus as an inheritance. Jesus says, I will save my people. And the Lord says, yes, if you keep the terms of this agreement, I will bless you and bless your people with all the blessings of redemption. And so when Jesus comes into the world, we read all through scripture in places like John chapter 17, for instance, Jesus' high priestly prayer. What does he say again and again? He says, I have come to do the what that you have given me? Come to do the work that you have given me. Father, now I am accomplishing the work that you gave me to accomplish. Jesus had a job to do when he came into the world. He undertook the work of a mediator, of our prophet, priest, and king. And here, what we're seeing in chapter 5 rests upon this agreement between father and son. That if Jesus perfectly fulfills the work the father gives him, then the eternal salvation of all his people is absolutely secure. Absolutely secure. And that's exactly where our text is taking us. When in verse 9 we read that Jesus becomes the source of eternal salvation for all his people. But this work that Jesus was sent to undertake and that he voluntarily out of love for us undertook was a work of humiliation. A work that we could say was beneath him, so far beneath him 
in his estate of glory as the Son of God. And so we have to move then from thinking about the selection of our high priest to his humiliation. Look at verses 7 to 9 with me. These verses are rich with comforting truth. Verse 7, During the days of Jesus on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. Let's think for just a moment about these verses and what they teach us about Christ's humiliation, the depths to which he stooped in order to redeem us as our great high priest. First of all, verse 7 tells us about the days of Jesus' life on earth. Other translations have in the days of his flesh a reminder of something that we might pass over unthinkingly, that Jesus, yes, truly God, also was truly man, that he became incarnate, he took on flesh, he had a body, a real body, he was born, as we've just recalled in the Christmas season, as a real baby, he grew up, he lived in the flesh, and during the days of his flesh, he suffered. He was truly human. Chapter 2, verse 14 told us this. Since the children have flesh and blood, Jesus too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil. Chapter 4, verse 15, as we heard this morning, reminds us what it means that Jesus really took on flesh when it says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to feel sympathy for our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Here in verse 7 of chapter 5, we're given another glimpse of Jesus in his full humanity. Jesus in his humanity that he experienced suffering, that he experienced emotional, psychological, and physical turmoil during his life. We know from the Gospels what some of that entailed, don't we? Do you remember what those last hours of Jesus' life were like? Luke 22 reminds us of that evening before he was crucified. We read in Luke 22, verses 41 to 44, Jesus withdrew about a stone's throw beyond his disciples, and he knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, Jesus prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Jesus, we are told again and again in Scripture, shared in the miseries of this life. And more than that, he shared in the sufferings, he took upon himself rather, the sufferings of the cross, the cursed cross upon which he died. Jesus knew that this would happen before he engaged to undertake the work of becoming a man to save his people, and yet he did so. We're reminded, aren't we, of Philippians chapter 2, where Paul says something similar, that Jesus did not count it beneath him to stoop down to become a human, to suffer, to live, to die, to experience all the kinds of things that we experience, so that he could identify with us in what it means to be fully human, especially, Hebrews says, in terms of what it means to suffer. Brothers and sisters, this morning I want to ask you, are you suffering in any way? What effects 
does sin have in your life? Effects simply being human have in your life at the moment? What kind of suffering are you experiencing? Perhaps you have been ill over these winter weeks and months. Perhaps you're struggling with an ongoing illness that is discouraging. Perhaps instead you're anxious about things that the Lord has brought into your life and you have very little peace and rest in your soul. Perhaps you are actually facing pressure, pressure at work to compromise, pressure generally with your friends or family members, perhaps who aren't believers, pressure that makes it difficult to cling to your faith and to live as you know the Lord wants you to live. How are you suffering? Now consider this. The Lord Jesus has suffered to the utmost. He knows what suffering entails. He has experienced it to the full, yet without sin. He who in his own life, in the days of his flesh, cried out to God, to his Father, there in that garden of Gethsemane, Father, let this cup pass from me, but if not, let your will be done. This is our great high priest. This one who cried out in anguish and in tears. That is the high priest who intercedes for you. That is the high priest to whom you can turn by faith as your own this morning. That is the one who is a perfect high priest on your behalf. He is merciful. Hebrews tells us, a merciful high priest. Never hesitate to to turn to him with anything in your life, especially your suffering. But there's more in verses 8 and 9 as we come toward the close of our passage. In verses 8 and 9, we're told not only did Jesus suffer, but that in his condescension, in his suffering, he also learned obedience. Do you see that? It's an amazing statement, isn't it? That although he was a son, yet he learned obedience by what he suffered. What can this mean? What can it mean that Jesus learned obedience? Surely there was nothing lacking in Jesus, the Son of God. Surely he had nothing to learn. And yet Hebrews tells us he learned obedience through what he suffered. His suffering as part of that work that he was given to do by the Father on behalf of sinners who needed a Savior, that suffering taught him full obedience as he learned to submit himself to God's perfect will, no matter what that entailed for him. So I ask you once again, not only this question, what are you suffering at the moment? But as we look ahead to a new year, 2016, an unknown year, not knowing what the Lord in his good providence will bring our way, not knowing what this city, this country, what Europe will look like in another 12 months, not knowing what the church of our Lord Jesus Christ will face over these next 12 months, not knowing what kind of suffering the Lord might see fit to bring into your life over these next 12 months. What encouragement do we draw from the fact that Jesus, our high priest, learned obedience through what he suffered? Well, this is our encouragement, brothers and sisters, this morning, that Jesus 
perfectly accomplished that work that he was given to do by the Father. Perfectly. He was without sin. He submitted himself so utterly to the Father's will that he did not deign even to go to death on a cross, to make purification for our sins, for your sins, if you turn to him by faith. This is the accomplishment of our high priest as he undertook that work of humiliation. Jesus was selected as a high priest. He embraced humiliation as our high priest, and that made him a perfect high priest. Verse 9, having been made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. The source of eternal salvation. What kind of perfection could verse 9 be speaking of? What kind of perfection could Jesus have gained that he did not already have as the eternal, uncreated Son of God? Well, it's just this. It's the perfection that came through being appointed to carry out this work of redemption and obeying through suffering. In that work, he was perfectly qualified, perfectly suited, made exactly into what it is that we need. He was made perfect to be our high priest, to bring us into God's very presence, and to be the eternal source of salvation for us. Salvation from our sin, first and foremost, if we turn to Christ by faith. Salvation from the sufferings and the miseries of this life, not in the sense that he will immediately deliver us out of them, as we know, as we know well, but in the sense that he will sustain us through whatever suffering he sees fit to bring into our lives. And then ultimately at the end will bring us to himself in glory. And salvation for life, even life now, in the very presence of the Father. Do you begin to see how these verses give an explanation and a support that helps us understand and embrace chapter 4, verses 14 to 16? Do you see how knowing that Jesus is a perfect high priest helps us to draw near with full confidence into the very throne room of God to find grace and mercy in our time of need? He's become that eternal source of salvation to all who will obey him. That's a funny way of putting it to our ears. What does that mean in Hebrews' way of speaking? Well, Hebrews uses this same kind of phrase in chapter 11, verse 8, when it speaks of Abraham, who by faith embraced the promises that God had made to him. And it becomes clear right throughout Hebrews, right throughout the New Testament, that those who embrace Christ by faith are the ones spoken of here in the language of those who obey him. What does it mean then? To make Jesus our high priest, your own high priest, it means to embrace him by faith and to cling to him by faith. Those who originally received this letter were facing great pressure, we're told at the end of chapter 10. Some of them had had property that was seized. Others were suffering persecution. They were under pressure at the end of the first century, surrounded by a world that worshipped other gods and a world, most of all, that did not want the boat to be rocked by a claim that there could ever be one way to God, that there could ever be one savior of sinners. And that pressure was beginning to make itself felt upon these original hearers of the letter of Hebrews. Don't we find ourselves entering into 
a phase in our history that begins to look very similar. Don't we also need this word so that we can persevere in our faith by clinging to a perfect high priest? I want to close with the words from a hymn by Isaac Watts, uh, that, that great old hymn writer. And it's a hymn called Jesus, My Great High Priest. It's full of good Hebrews theology. And it says this, Jesus, my great high priest, offered his blood and died. My guilty conscience seeks no sacrifice beside. His powerful blood did once atone, and now it pleads before the throne. To this dear surety's hand will I commit my cause. He answers and fulfills his father's broken laws. Behold, my soul at freedom set, my surety paid the dreadful debt. Jesus is a perfect high priest, selected for you, appointed for you, who suffered and was humiliated for you. Would you embrace him by faith this morning? Let us pray.